0: From WKYT Podcast, this is Uniquely Kentucky. I'm your host, Amber Philpotts. Hello podcast listeners. I hope this episode finds you doing well. As a journalist now for 19 years, there have been stories that have quite frankly just fascinated me, and when I hear a mention of it, I want to know what the latest is in the case. One of those stories for me is that of disgraced Eastern Kentucky lawyer Eric C. Kahn. The Floyd County attorney managed to pull off the largest social security fraud scheme in US history. His story is one that's really almost unbelievable and one that you might think was ripped from the pages of a Hollywood script. Khan's story was recently released as part of a new docu-series, The Big Con, on Apple TV+. For this episode of Uniquely Kentucky, I'm talking with former WKYT and WYMT reporter and anchor Tanner Hesterberg. Tanner has worked on this case in his reporter days, but now is back in eastern Kentucky as an attorney and fighting to help some of Khan's former clients try and get their benefits back and their life back on track.
1: Uniquely Kentucky with Amber Philpott is brought to you by the WKYT News and Weather apps, available on the App Store and Google Play.
0: Welcome into Uniquely Kentucky. I am joined by someone that maybe some of our listeners slash viewers will remember he hasn't been gone that long, Mr. Tanner Hesterberg. He was a reporter with WYMT in Hazard and also with us at WKYT, also anchored the news as well. And now he is an attorney in Eastern Kentucky. Tanner, welcome.
1: Amber, from one Morehead State Eagle to another, thank you for having me on your podcast. This is a big honor and a real treat for me.
0: Oh, Tanner, you know, we could talk about a million different things. Obviously, news, Moorhead State, sports. We have shared a lot of different things from those realms together. What I wanted to bring you on today and and talk to you about is something that I know both of us have a lot of interest in when it was happening in the news world um, is Eric C. Kahn. Um, There is a new docu-series out on Apple Plus, the big con. You are a part of that. And now the work that you're doing in Eastern Kentucky is also uh, still a part of that. So I want to talk about all of that. But first of all, for folks who may remember you from television, let's start there. Uh, You're no longer in TV. You decided to get out of the business and, as we say, go to the other side. So talk to me about getting into law.
1: Uh, I, I had to retire I knew I, w- I was never going to be on the level of Amber Philpott and Sam Dick and Bill Bryant and all those guys so I, I had to pick a new path I, I love I love you and, and all of them I'm, I'm just kidding but I had a great experience in television you know it, it people ask me why did you get out of tv news you know you had this great career and they're right I really did and you would think as often as I get asked that I'd, I'd have a good answer for it um but I really don't. I I can tell you why I didn't get out of TV. It wasn't because I was burnt out. It wasn't because I wasn't passionate about the work anymore. I still enjoyed it. Uh, I had great bosses. uh, Robert Thomas, your news director at WKYT, Steve Hensley and Neil Middleton at, at WYMT, they were all great to me and I had a great gig. I was the weekend news anchor at the time at WKYT, got to fill in uh, and and co-anchor with you on a few occasions. In fact, I have to digress for a second and mention one of my favorite memories was one evening I got to fill in with you, and it was Brian Milam doing sports and Chris Bailey uh, doing weather, and so we had an all-Moorhead mm-hmm. State anchor team that night. That was pretty special, um,
0: yeah.
1: Th- that was pretty cool, so it, it it was hard to give all of that up, but You know, I remember Jeff Ruby had a quote once, and he said, when you're about to make a major life decision, listen to what your heart is telling you, your brain is telling you, and your gut is telling you. And if two out of three are telling you to do something, then that's probably the decision you need to make. And I was 28 years old at the time, and I'd always thought about law school. And I I was like, you know what, this is the window of your life. If you're ever going to make this move and do it, you need to do it now. So I left TV News after uh, about a, about seven years, um, you know, collectively. I did about five years at, at WYMT in Hazard, and then a couple of years there at WKYT in Lexington. Um, moved up to Cincinnati, went to the University of Cincinnati Law School. I graduated in May of 2021. Uh, took the bar exam a couple of months later in July, and found out in October I passed, and was very fortunate to pass on, on my first attempt. And I got sworn in and did my first trial, uh, a criminal trial here in Floyd County the very next day. And I've been off and running since. So no rest for uh, the weary
0: I'm, there, right? <laughs> I,
1: you know, the good Lord has really blessed me, Amber, um, with all these opportunities. And obviously, the the Eric Kahn saga, the reason you had me on here to, um, you know, to discuss that, That was obviously the biggest story I covered as a TV news reporter, and now here I am on the other side of it, um, working for a law firm that is helping a lot of his former clients who had their Social Security benefits taken away, and we're helping them try to get those benefits back. So it, it, it was very rewarding to cover that story and try to help them as a, you know, from the journalism perspective, and it's rewarding now too on the legal side to be able to try to help these people.
0: Well, Tanner, one of the things I think is so remarkable about your story is, and I've told you this and I applaud you for it, is that you you could do law anywhere. You could have come back to Lexington. You could have uh, really chosen anywhere. You could have stayed in Cincinnati, but you chose to come back to an area that may not seem real glamorous to a lot of people, but... To you and I, and I think I can say this about you, Eastern Kentucky has our heart and it will always have our heart for a multitude of reasons. And also because of your journalistic background in Eastern Kentucky, it seemed like it was very easy for you to go back and say, this is where I want to practice and these are the folks that I want to help and work for.
1: Yeah, and and you and I certainly are far from the first people to ever come work in this region and fall in love with it and fall in love with the people and fall in love with the culture. I think it's a really misunderstood region. And anytime the national media comes to Eastern Kentucky, I think folks here have a healthy skepticism of it. And when the, this documentary crew first approached me about interviewing me for this story and the documentary on Eric Kahn, and they told me they were going to be interviewing these folks in Eastern Kentucky, I, I kind of gave them the primer of, look, you know, you're going to run into a little bit of resistance because of how unfairly the region has been portrayed over the years in the national media. I mean, you know, you, you go back to the, uh, you know, the Diane Sawyer story and the Mountain Dew mouth and, and all that nonsense and, and, you know, people living in trailers and, you know, we're a bunch of backwoods rubes that vote against our own self-interest and, and all just all of that crap is, you know, yeah. it's just baloney. And people don't like being around here, don't like being categorized into a box like that. And this documentary crew, I'll tell you, Amber, they were very mindful of all of that, and they were very respectful of all these people. And after watching the documentary, I was very pleased um, with how they portrayed Eastern Kentucky, and particularly how they portrayed the the plight of Mm -hmm. these these folks who had Eric Kahn as their attorney, and then had their lives turned upside down
0: you know, I I was kind of sitting waiting for the same, you know, I I binged it just like a lot of different people, but I also binged it with a different eye on it because for you and I, we lived that story, if you will, in terms of the way we reported on it. Um, obviously, other people were living it in a very different real way. We lived it through the news cycle. Um, and I also kind of thought the same thing. I was concerned about how people would be portrayed. I was concerned about how much this story would just be made to be this just ridiculous tale but at the end of the day, you know, it really did do justice. And I think it finally gave a voice to a lot of people that didn't have a voice, namely the whistleblowers um, in this. So let's go back um, in, in case people are listening. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, Eric C. Conn managed to pull off one of the biggest Social Security schemes, a fraud scheme in the U.S. history. Um, this was a story. This was a guy, though, Tanner, for you and I prior to this happening If you've worked in Eastern Kentucky, you knew who Eric Kahn was. You saw him because you couldn't go down the road and not see a billboard talking about what he does for a living. So for people that are unfamiliar with Eric Kahn before what they know as the fraud now, what do you say? How do you describe him to people and and what happens?
1: (sighs) I, I don't know that you can encapsulate Eric Kahn in a sentence. In the 30 minutes or, we have
0: here. So. Or,
1: <laughs> or a paragraph or or even a word. I think the very first quote they use of mine in the documentary is calling Eric Kahn a bombastic figure. Uh, so I, I guess that's as about as succinct as I can put it. He was everywhere. And, uh, you know, it, it, and Ned had a quote in the documentary, too. If you went down the street here in eastern Kentucky and ask 10 people who the president was, nine of them would know who the president is, but all 10 would know who Eric Kahn was. He was just ubiquitous. He was everywhere uh, on the billboards, on the airwaves. He he was kind of the, the guy who perfected viral marketing before viral marketing was even a thing as we understand it now. And so to see him go from that sort of figure who was, Kind of, he kind of had this mythology about him and was pretty universally liked around here because of all the success he had winning people's benefits. To see him go from that to now serving what amounts to a life sentence in federal prison is, is really shocking. And I hope people um, you know, who watch the documentary um, can, can get a sense of just what a, just an insane story it was in this part of the country.
0: You know, Tanner, for people that may not understand, there are a lot of people that won't understand um, what it's like or the need to get those benefits. When you have someone like Eric Kahn, who who was very successful, how important was a guy like that to a lot of people who did it, who needed the benefits for the right reason? How important was he to folks?
1: He was extremely important because this is a part of the country where there are a lot of on-the-job injuries. A lot of people are sick and have poor health outcomes in eastern Kentucky. You know, a lot of uh, people went to work in the coal mines and got hurt and needed to get on disability. And he had this amazing track record. Whatever his percentage was, it was way up in, in the 90% in terms of his, of his batting average on these cases. And Amber, it wasn't just that he was winning cases, he was getting results in as little as a month uh, in a process that typically takes on average about 18 months for somebody to win their disability benefits. You usually apply, get denied two or three times, they stretch it out over a year or two before you finally win your benefits if you're even lucky enough to win them. So it, it wasn't just that he was winning, he was winning quickly. And it's untelling how many millions of dollars got injected into Eastern Kentucky's economy uh, because of this scheme that he engineered. And, of course, we now know the reason he was able to win and win so quickly is because he had judges and doctors on the tape.
0: I'm going to ask you to take the the, uh, lawyer, the attorney hat off, and let's go back to the news side. When do you remember in terms of the news cycle uh, first reporting on or, you know, your first kind of recollection of, of Eric Kahn and this story starting to become something because you ultimately covered this story quite a bit.
1: Well, the story first entered the national conscience bef- while I was still in college before mm-hmm. I even got to WYMT. I think the Wall Street Journal article, it, you know, there's a lot of dates and I hope I'm not getting my dates sure. mixed up, but I think the Wall Street Journal article came out in 2011. And Mm -hmm. then the 60 Minutes piece came out in 2013. And all of this is in the documentary, by the way. My first major involvement with the story originated in 2015 when we started getting calls in our newsroom in Hazard Mm -hmm. of all these people who had received these letters stating, essentially you are a former client of Eric C. Kahn and your disability benefits are being suspended because of suspected fraud. And that initiated a humanitarian crisis here in Eastern Kentucky because for the overwhelming majority of these folks, this was their only source of income. You know, they didn't have any other way to to pay their bills or uh, buy food. I mean, you know, many of them obviously received government assistance in that regard too. But uh, I, I would go to these people's homes and, and sit down at their kitchen tables and interview them. And they would say things like, you know, I don't know how I'm going to be able to buy my grandkids Christmas gifts. I don't know how I'm going to be able to buy clothes. I don't know how I'm going to be able to pay my power bill and my water bill. And it was extremely tragic. And for some people, it was such a shock to the system and sent them into such a spiral of depression that there were several suicides and you know it it, it's just you know I don't mean to sound flippant about it because that's you know that that's the most tragic outcome that that could possibly transpire and it happened because of this sudden change in circumstances for these folks who um were depending on depending on these disability checks and then in the blink of an eye they didn't have that anymore
0: did you ever have, I, I can't remember, did you have any direct contact with, you know, Eric in terms of trying to get an interview at one point or trying to reach out to him? I feel like there was something there, right?
1: Well, yes and no. That's a difficult yeah. question to answer. When, uh, when, you know, for the longest time it, it, in 2015, when his former clients were receiving these suspension letters, he still had not been indicted. And it wasn't until later that he he got prosecuted. So for a while, um, you know, there was a groundswell of anger and frustration against him in eastern Kentucky. Uh, The same people who had come to love him all of a sudden came to resent him because they lost these benefits that, that he had helped them win. So about that time, I think there was some initial contact when we first started running those stories, and he obviously was not a fan of that, and if I remember correctly, he made that known to us in (laughs) not so many words. And then later, uh, you know, not to, you know, give a spoiler alert for the people who haven't seen the documentary yet, um, he at one point goes on the run from the law, and while he's in another country, he contacted me at our newsroom at WKYT. Um, he also contacted Bill Eastep from the Lexington Herald-Leader, maybe one or two other people, and with these cryptic emails that had these riddles in them about what country he might be hiding out in, and, you know, he took some pot shots at uh, his former adversaries and people mm. who used to work for him, and, you know, he was pretty clearly spiraling out of control at that point and, and seeking attention, but... It, there are so many twists and turns to this story. It it, it really is unbelievable, and I'm glad that there's finally a mm-hmm. a documentary that people can watch that does a really good job of taking all these crazy twists and turns and all this information and right. and and assembling it in uh, four digestible episodes.
0: I, I felt like I I don't know if you would agree, but I, I do feel like you know we had heard so much. Um, about the whistleblowers and we knew that, you know, they had had some interview, but this is really the first time for a lot of people they're going to see and they're going to hear this story in their words. And I really thought, I guess, from my journalistic standpoint of, of hearing their story and also just seeing um, how it can really work and what doesn't work and how much you have to fight and also put yourself at risk to bring this story, because really none of this would have come to light if there wasn't those two whistleblowers plus what had been written to begin with to kind of set things in motion. So I felt like they really got a good, um, they, they, they got what they needed to say across in this
1: docu-series. I would agree with that. I think the, I think the documentary really heroifies the whistleblowers, uh, Sarah Carver and Jennifer Griffith, and, and justifiably so. Um, and, and I think you also have to give credit to, um, you know, his Eric Khan's two former staff members mm-hmm. who uh, volunteered to go to Capitol Hill and testify. They weren't forced to do that. They did it on their own and, um, and, and, and told the truth about uh, some of his tactics. And, and, you know, that helped kind of get the truth out there and let people see that things happening in that office were not above board. And, and I'll tell you another thing I really liked about the documentary, and, and I hope I'm not giving too much of it away, people should absolutely go watch it, but I, I really liked that they included Eric Kahn's daughter mm-hmm. in the documentary, I thought it really helped humanize their family and show more of the human toll that his bad decisions took, and at, prior to that documentary I didn't even know he had a daughter. And Same, I, Yeah. I I certainly feel for her and I'm Mm -hmm. grateful that she agreed to be interviewed because it gave some insight into a a window, I think, that was previously unexplored in this whole mess.
0: You know, someone else that you're going to see in this in this documentary is Ned Pillersdorf, who um, I I know (laughs) has been a mentor to you and someone that you chose to come back and and sort of... uh, work under before as you were getting your law degree. Um, Ned really is somebody that really has been a champion of people even long before um, Eric Kahn. He was a champion of the people of Eastern Kentucky. Talk to me about Ned and, and how he has influenced what you're doing now and especially coming back to the region to serve in the way you are now.
1: You know, somebody asked me about Ned the other day and, and what it's like working for him. And I said, honestly, it, it can't be described. It has to be experienced. <laughs> um, gosh, you know, there, there exists not in the English language mm-hmm. an arrangement of words to wholly describe Ned Pillersdorf. I mean, I, I feel like the phrase Ned Pillersdorf" in and of itself is a description <laughs> because there's no, there, is no, there are no others like him. There will never be another like him. And he was so uniquely situated to spearhead this legal response on behalf of the huh. con clients. If it wasn't for him and, and some other folks, too, John Rosenberg, Evan Smith, the folks at Apple Red, this army of volunteer lawyers, if, if, if all those people led by Ned had not stepped up, you know, these poor folks would have gotten steamrolled. And, and who knows what the outcome would have been?
0: And I think too, Tanner, when I was watching the documentary and, and, and then remembering that so many people like that stepped up, I think that's a whole other, that could also be explored in a whole different way of how you bring those folks together. I mean, all of those stepped up to really do that work for free to come in. And as you said, this was a crisis in itself with so many people and the fact that it is still going on and to this minute as we talk right now, it's still ongoing for folks and their livelihood.
1: Yeah, and and I'm really glad you brought that up, Amber, because the legal profession sort of has a stigma and sometimes a stench in terms of public reputation. Mm -hmm. People don't always hold lawyers in the highest regard. And I joked with somebody the other day. I said, I, you know, I, I I got tired of a thankless job as a reporter and people always um, taking shots at my career. So I decided to become an attorney. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you I think we work in two of the um, yeah. two of the two careers that definitely are are not all, always held in the highest public regard these days, which is completely unfair and probably a conversation for another day. But <laughs> hard, to get back I to guess. my <laughs> <laughs> to get back to my point i think that this this movie or this documentary shows that response from these volunteer lawyers and it was a great credit to the bar it was yeah. it was very. It, it shows people that there are a lot of good attorneys out there there are still a lot of good people in this world and when an injustice is committed people will step up if you can get the word out to them so god bless the volunteer lawyers and and you know, where would these people be if if those attorneys hadn't stepped up to help them? I mean, yeah, you you
0: really feel for them. I mean, and you you really do. Yeah, none of us can understand that. But, you know, I think some of the stories that have been able to be told and, and we're still telling those stories to this day, even around this particular documentary coming out, we were still revisiting what's happening. And obviously, Ned was just in the news again, you know, talking about, you know, we've got, you know, trying to get just the word out to as many people continued. Um. Tanner, how has a story like this that you can take from a career in journalism and then know that you're stepping into really the exact same thing in terms of your law career, how has it shaped how you approach people, work with people, how you advocate for them in the job that you do now coming out of news and, and having a story like this sort of follow you, if you will?
1: I think the best way to answer that is to kind of circle back to when I first decided to to leave TV news to become an attorney. Um, you know, I, I, I knew I wanted to do something to have a greater impact to help my friends and neighbors in eastern Kentucky, and that's not meant at all to minimize the impact of good journalism. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know better than anybody, Amber, how important journalism is, particularly in rural communities. I mean, that is a great public service. I just felt like for me personally, it, I had a, I could do that in a greater capacity in a career on the legal side, you know, more than I was doing at the time, um, you know, on the journalism side. And, uh, you know, it, it, it being able to, to work here in Eastern Kentucky and be on, on the ground with these folks and, and sit down and talk to them face-to-face and ask them what I can do to help them. Mm-hmm. It's extremely gratifying work for me. And, uh, you know, you, you have to love what you're doing. And, you, you know, your, your career needs to provide um, fulfillment and that rewarding feeling to you. And it, being able to, to do that every day and, and help the folks here in Eastern Kentucky on the legal side of things. Now, it was great when I was a reporter getting to do it. And and it's great now too, that I'm representing them uh, in the courtroom and, and, and whatever else I can help help them do. It
0: is commendable for sure. And you've also fallen right in line for folks that might know Ned. He is a huge animal <laughs> lover, huge dog lover. Uh, does he still have the St. Bernard?
1: He, well, Ned has always had a St. Bernard. Okay. He's had five or six now. Okay. And- so it's
0: a multitude of St. Bernard's. Okay. You have fallen in the- into that because you have your own, is it legal beagle that you, uh, what, what is it? Muggsy?
1: <laughs> I I have Muggsy the legal beagle. Okay. He's in our commercial now. And he, uh, he, he's in our commercial and every now and then I'll, uh, I'll use him on social media. He's pretty popular. He's certainly more popular than I am. Um, Actually, the St. Bernard that you see with Ned in the documentary on the billboard taunting the Social Security Administration, that was Haley. She passed away recently, but oh. Ned now has a new St. Bernard named Athena, who is a rescue St. Bernard. And she uh, we tried to put her in the commercial, but she was a little too rambunctious. So she's still waiting to make her TV debut. <laughs> I love
0: everything about that. Um, as I said, we are Morehead State grads. Um, we both literally right behind me, I have my Moorhead stuff shamelessly put right behind me. I have the picture of where we, the shot that beat Louisville. I hear that you have that right behind you as well. Uh, Talk to me about your time at Moorhead State and and what that did for you in terms of uh, both careers, getting you ready for both of your careers.
1: Well, as a journalist, and now certainly as an attorney, you know, you you rely on your communication skills, mm-hmm. and I felt like that foundation was certainly poured and developed at Moorhead State. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm grateful to my professors. I'm grateful to the folks at, at Moorhead State Public Radio, where I worked for about four years, You know Chuck Moraz, Dan Conti, mm-hmm. Paul Hitchcock, Greg Jenkins all those guys, um, you know, they made an investment in me, particularly Chuck. He and I spent a lot of time together. Of course, he's the radio voice of the Eagles. Mm-hmm. And now one of the coolest things is I get to fill in for him sometimes uh, on the Moorhead State Sports Network. And and I also get to, you know, call some of the football games um, for ESPN Plus for Moorhead State. I still do play-by-play on the side. Um, and, and all of that, you know, you can trace it directly back to Moorhead State. And I certainly had a wonderful experience there. My whole family—we're all Moorhead State grads—and we bleed blue and gold.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Always, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah. We're, uh, you know, when we got to go to the NCAA tournament, mm-hmm. I say we as if I play on the team, but I do no, feel it's, like it's, it's a we. Why
0: we. well, say we? Yeah, it, it's a we
1: so emotionally invested in it and getting to go to the NCAA tournament a couple years ago and then back in 2011 we win and 2009 and you know I love hearing all the old stories from the Wayne Martin coaching days and um, you know there's just so much tradition there to to be proud of.
0: You know we as soon as we popped on to do this um, podcast and we and we put up the Zoom Tanner was like this is, this is weird. This is really weird. And it is weird. It is so weird for us to sit down in this way to do this. Um, I'm, I'm wondering when, when the, the documentary crew came, um, you know, I think a lot of people think just because maybe we are good communicators, we are in the business, we were in the business, that you automatically are comfortable sitting on the other side of the camera. That's not always the case. So how did you uh, go about, you know, being interviewed by this crew? Was it weird for you?
1: it was and i definitely have a new appreciation for the folks who sit down on the other side of the yeah. camera and answer the questions and try to come up with thoughtful coherent responses in 10 to 15 mm-hmm. second sound bites i <laughs> i probably took for took that for granted a little bit most of the time i, I was never that uncomfortable in a reporting capacity, because most of the time I had in my mind at least an outline of what I wanted to say. Mm-hmm. And so I had something to fall back on, if, if you know, in the worst case scenario. Uh, But uh, they interviewed me for about seven hours in a room here in the law office. And then, yeah, yeah. And it, you know, my brain was fried by the end of it. (laughs) They interviewed Ned for two days. And of course, then they shot a bunch of B-roll of us. In fact, the ending shot where you see Ned and I walking down the street uh, here in Prestonsburg, we were actually, they followed us walking all the way into Billy Ray's restaurant. (laughs) I wish they would have used that part, but I, I, I was a little hesitant to be interviewed at first, because I didn't want this to be about me in right. any capacity. I wanted the spotlight to be on, you know, the actual story Absolutely. on the people who were harmed mm-hmm. by this scheme. And I think the documentary did a good job of, of, of showing these folks whose lives were wrecked not only because of Eric Kahn's actions, but mostly because of what the Social Security Administration did to them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think um, that that is well said, and, and I think that that comes across. I think also I'm just still jaw dropped because you and I work in, when, when you were doing news and obviously still doing it for me, like y- you shoot just maybe, I mean, if you get a luxury as an hour to shoot a story with someone on, uh, in what we do, right. To think of seven sure. hours in two days is a lot of footage to go through. So gosh, bless the editors that do that. Um, Tina, I guess my last thing with you, cause you are super busy and I've asked you to stay late at the office to do this. What do you hope um, people take away Um, if, if they know the Eric Khan story, they're going to sit down and watch this. What do you hope people take away and can be the message? Because obviously the end goal is getting people the benefits they need and the help they need. But at the end of the day, also some good has got to come out of this. So what do you hope is the takeaway, um, with all of this when it's said and done?
1: Right. Well, you know, Eric Kahn's wild antics obviously provide this great hook to tell the story. Um, But you can't tell the story of this unfortunate chapter in Eastern Kentucky without acknowledging the thousands of folks who did lose their livelihoods and some who unfortunately took their own lives. And people in Eastern Kentucky... Know the story, they know the true victims, uh, but our hope is that this documentary shines a national spotlight and even a global spotlight on what the real issues were here with our vulnerable friends and neighbors in this region. So we, help, we hope that it, it raises awareness on, on you know, what the true problems were here. We hope that it ramps up pressure on the Social Security Administration to uh, reach a resolution in these cases you know, there are lots of folks who still don't have their benefits back. There are lots of folks still waiting to be put through these redetermination hearings. We hope for a fair and just result uh, in that regard as well. And, and you know, the response has been overwhelming so far just in the week or two that the documentary has been mm-hmm. out. People are emailing and calling, wanting to donate money. Lawyers are wanting to come volunteer. So already the documentary is having a really um, positive response, and we're hoping that the longer it's out there and the more eyeballs get put on this documentary, um, that will increase our chances of, of accomplishing what we want to accomplish, and that's bringing the curtain down on this whole thing and, and ending this nightmare.
0: Have you had a moment where someone, you know, has come to you and, 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 you know, they've been able to get the help that they need and they have thanked you. And, and if you've had that moment, what was that like for you? Because again, the passion is there for the people of that region. I know that for you. So what, what has that been like if you've had that experience with people?
1: It, it's the greatest feeling in the world. And I feel selfish for even, you know, talking about that. Uh, but. And and I've had several of those moments, you know, in in my legal work. Apart from this whole con mess, you know, just in my day to day job, and you know that's why you get up in the morning. It's to help these people. But I, you know, when you were asking me that question, I couldn't help but think of Poe Stapleton, who's Mm -hmm. the the man who was interviewed. Mm -hmm. His daughter was the one in the film who was in such a terrible state, and you know, was on the couch and couldn't communicate. And, you know, unfortunately, she has since passed away since she was filmed in that documentary. Mm. And, you know, Mr. Stapleton came into the office and there's a scene in the documentary where he's talking to Ned and he's breaking down and he's crying and he's just overwhelmed with frustration at the Social Security Administration and at Eric Kahn that it's gotten to this point where the Social Security Administration took away benefits from his daughter, who was obviously in a terrible state and deserving of disability benefits, and not only took the benefits away from her, but told her she needed to pay back tens of thousands of dollars because she was somehow in on this fraud. Mm -hmm. And that was a very powerful moment between Ned and and Post Stapleton. And that's in the fourth episode. And I don't want to talk anymore about it because I want people to watch it and experience it for themselves. But if there's one moment that really sums up the documentary and encapsulates, you know, the the feeling of, of betrayal and the feeling of being just overall done wrong right. by the federal government, uh, you know, against the people of Eastern Kentucky. I, I think it's that moment with Post Stapleton.
0: Well, Tanner Hesterberg, I miss you in the news world, but I also you know too. that you are an incredibly, Uh, you are incredibly beneficial where you are now, and you are doing what you are meant to do. I can tell that just even in this brief 30 minutes that I've spent with you, how passionate you are about this. So I miss you, but I'm glad you're doing what you're doing now.
1: Well, thank you so much for those kind words, Amber. Um, This has been a real honor for me, obviously. I looked up to you as a young reporter, and, and not just you, but a lot to you, yeah. um, when I was coming up through the ranks at WYMT, you had a brief stop in in Hazard, and folks were still talking about you when I was there, in a very positive way, yeah. and to be able to have that career, and now have the career I, I have now, I'm, I'm a very blessed guy, and you know, I, I probably take it for granted sometimes, but uh, the good Lord sure has blessed me, and this has been a real honor for me, thank you. Wow.
0: Tanner, um, like I said, I, I appreciate all of that and um, and you you were one of the good ones. We knew that you had it and you wanted to do it, but I'm also glad that you found another passion. So people can find you. The law office is there in Floyd County, correct?
1: Yep, we're in downtown Prestonsburg near the courthouse and pillarsdorflaw.com. That's our email address if you want to shoot us an email. Um, be happy to help anybody that that reaches out to us.
0: Well, you're there for that. So we'll give you a shameless plug for that. And then also, um, you can see the entire story, the four episodes of the big con on Apple uh, TV plus right now, check it out. Um, We've given you a few spoilers in there, but even if we gave you a spoiler, it is still worth going and checking out. Um, It is really eye opening. And so Tanner, thank you for bringing us a little bit of insight into your part in that and, and what Ned is doing down there as well. So thank you so much to all of our listeners go check that out and thank you for your time. And I'll see you again. Well, I'll see you on the news before you hear me again on a podcast. Thank you.
1: Get more local news and weather at a more convenient time. Watch WKYT News at 10 on the CW Lexington with Amber Philpot, Bill Bryant and Chris Bailey.